Hey everyone, we've got a new sponsor for the show this month, Scrivener, the software that helps organize ideas for writing stories, research papers, or articles. Alex and some of my other writing friends have been using it for years, and I recently started too. It's got a lot of tools to help outline and plan out stories in a much more visually useful and organized way than my usual slipshod method of keeping a bunch of disorganized notes on Google Docs. If you want to try it out, they offer a free 30-day trial, and if you decide to buy it and help support the show, you can use the code RATIONALLY to get 20% off during the month of March. Hope you find it useful. Hello and welcome to Rationally Writing. I'm Daystar Eld. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 28, Creative Appropriation, part one. This will be a little bit of a counterpoint to our, I think it was episode three and four were originality and fan fiction. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit of a counterpoint to it, right? So we have an episode of originality and then we, this, this is our episode on how to not be original. Right. This is the episode where we encourage you to borrow and steal as much as you can from every other source, which is not new to us, obviously. There's a quote that's been attributed to a lot of different writers over the years, where it goes something like, good writers borrow, great writers steal, or good artists imitate, great writers steal, or something like that. And different people have had it attributed to them over the years. But I, I generally, I find it a useful mode of thinking. Yeah, I think it's for the same reason that I like fan fiction. I think I like when people take ideas and make them their own, mm-hmm. it's just that they're they're very different things when you do just fanfic of something as a way of taking that idea and just rolling your own using that same sort of central idea. We'll talk very briefly about ethics first. Mm-hmm. So neither of us are lawyers, first off. Right. <laughs> but I, I've taken a few copyright law classes. Ideas cannot be copyrighted. People can still sue you over an idea that you took, but they usually lose. One example, before Groundhog Day, there was a short story, 12.01 p.m., where this guy, he keeps repeating the same hour over and over. Mm-hmm. It's like, it starts at 12.01, and then it repeats, and it's at 1, 1 p.m., and he goes through this loop again. And Groundhog Day came out, and they got, they got irate about it, about what they perceived as theft of their idea. And then they sued... Columbia or whoever was distributing Groundhog Day and they were in to- their lawyers were in talks for years and then finally the suit was dropped because without going before a judge or having a settlement at all. So that that idea of a time loop, which was basically the only thing that they shared in common, that was not copyrighted. You can trademark things as well. That's a different kettle of fish. But generally speaking, if you're taking just an idea and the more basic the idea, the better, you are legally in the clear. Right. So morally, it's a little different, right? There, there are some writers who view like fan works as basically theft, and as like more than that, like a violation of their creative works. Uh, there's some, there's some authors who go to fanfiction.net mm-hmm. and they've ensured that their stories won't be posted there. Because fanfiction, again, is is different from what we're mostly talking about here, but most fan works are copyright infringing, mm-hmm. like a couple exceptions that are diverge so far from the source material. But 
uh, the, the way that fanfiction.net stays in business is any author or publisher can come to them and say, hey, we don't want your we don't want any fan works of this specific author or this work or whatever to appear on your site. And then fanfiction.net says, oh, OK, well, then they're not going to appear. Right. Just as a way of making peace, I guess. I think that 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 view of some authors that their work is theirs alone and it's sacrosanct. I, I don't like that view. I don't I don't know. It's like I, I think about the, the Groundhog Day thing, mm-hmm. right? And I think, okay, what if this guy who wrote this short story about the a time loop in like nineteen seventy three, what if what if he what if everyone respected that and just said, Okay, we're that's it. No one's gonna write a time loop story again, right? Right. when you're talking about core mechanics of a story, a board game, a video game, it's like saying that you can't use the same note progression in any other song or something like that. It's not tenable artistically to copyright an idea that that specific. And because we have this distinction between specific names, places, and essentially proper nouns, right? You can't steal Hogwarts the magical school in Britain. But you can make a magical school in Britain that's a castle. Right. You can't steal Slytherin, Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, and, and Ravenclaw, but... You can make it sort kids into different houses. If you make it, if you make it four houses and you make their renowned attributes, courage, cunning, intelligence, and hard work, you, you might, you, you might get called to court. I don't, I don't know exactly where that line would be. But I know that there are some parody stories that have been written and published that are very obviously just kind of switching some letters around and make fun of uh, established works. And, and they are okay. Yeah. There's, well, there's a, um, there's a fair use exception mm-hmm. to copyright, which says that if you're doing a parody, that's fine. But if you're doing something like there's a Russian version of Harry Potter, which was Tanya Grotter, and it wasn't a parody. It was just in many ways, it was like a Russian take on Harry Potter, mm-hmm. where Harry Potter is British. Tanya Grotter was more Russian, but it didn't change enough. And whoever the publisher is for Harry Potter was able to stop publication of the Tanya Grotter books in everywhere except Russia, I think. Right. Let me actually look that up right now. Have you read it? I have not read Tony Grotter. I've read the the legal history I've read a lot of. Okay, I'm looking at a Google image right now of the front cover of the first book. She is riding a flying guitar with her wand out, and one hand is holding a green ball. Um, that looks like it just landed there. I can't tell if it has wings. Is that a little wing? Yeah. If that's a little wing, then yeah, that's, that's on the nose. <laughs> right. Tony Grotter, the defense was that it was a cultural reply right. to her. And the counter-argument to that was, uh, you know, you, you can't just, like, change a couple things to be more Russian mm-hmm. and then say, hey, this is this is original. It, that's one of those things that really skirts the line, especially because it was, you know, being published and they were trying to publish it in the same market as Harry Potter. But it was not it was not a fan work of Harry Potter. It was just taking a whole bunch of ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I'm going to just read this this first paragraph. The central character and plot elements of the first novel, Tanya Grotter and the Magical Double Bass, closely resemble those of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, but are transported to a Russian setting. Tanya Grotter has an unusual birthmark on her nose, magical powers, an upbringing by Lupokoid, equivalent to muggle relatives after her parents were killed by an evil sorceress, Chuma del Tort, the official translation for Voldemort name in Russia was Volondemort. So even sounding similar names here. And goes to study at the Tibudox... School of Behaviorally Challenged Young Witches and Wizards. Tanya's foster family, the Durnevs, 
which again, very close to the Dursleys, live in an urban apartment block, and Tanya is forced to sleep not in a cupboard, but in an apartment's logia. So, I'm not a lawyer, like you said, but the idea that this is a cultural reply does not, does not hold muster. This is transplanting the exact same concepts in the exact same way. Um, down, down to the misfortunes that the evil um, stepfamily is, is forcing on them. Yeah. If they took the Cinderella part of Cinderella, mashed it with the unkind stepfamily of Harry Potter, combined with the unfortunate history of the Golden Compass, instead of doing all three of those things exactly like Harry Potter's, no one would mind. Well, some people might mind, but legally I think they would have been a lot more in the clear because you're taking things from different things and mashing them together into something new. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's the big argument. Right. Is, is that nothing really new was created. Right. And that's where you get, that's where you get into, I think, a little moral trouble. If you're not actually creating anything new, you're just taking an idea and you're putting a new coat of paint on it. Mm-hmm. Socially, you get in trouble with readers and with critics to the extent you have them. If you're doing that, if you're taking an idea, even if you're in the clear, as far as legal stuff goes, people would be like, oh, it's just a rehash of whatever. And then they'll, they'll poo-poo it. And they'll think less of you, and no creator wants that, right? Mm-hmm. In the second book, apparently, Tanya finds herself pitted against Hurry Pooper in the World of Dragon Ball Championship while trying to reach the ball, the crash creating a new timeline in which, to restore normality, Tanya must defeat the Golden Leech. Mark Cooper, an independent academic at Indiana University's Russia and East European Institute, has interpreted the Golden Leech as capitalism and the whole plot as an allegory of Yemet's real-world legal conflict over copyright. <laughs> it sounds super interesting, right? Right. So they're clearly taking that in a new direction, but the, the defense they really should have gone with was parody. Right. Yeah. And parody is one of those defenses that a lot of people will will leap to for things that are not parody. Right. Um, I see that you see that a lot on for people who post fan fiction as sort of a, a layman's way around the legal troubles. They'll just be like, "Hey, this, like I don't I don't own this, and also it's a parody." Mm-hmm. And then you read it and you're like, "What about this was supposed to be a parody?" This is you're just writing fan fiction. Right, right. You can be honest about. So the idea that you you've got to add something new, legal legal issues aside, like that's where I draw the line morally for me personally. It's not and not even morally, honestly, just as a matter of artistic expression. Yeah. If, if there was no such thing as copyright and patenting, if if we had a culture of open dissemination of ideas and ad- adaptations of works, I would still frown at stories that just took elements of another story without doing something new with them. Yeah, I think that if we lived in that in that culture, and to some extent we do, mm-hmm. especially on the internet, which is right, kind right, of right. Uh, wild west. Yeah, I think that you would see people just in the free market of ideas, they would just reject those things, mm-hmm. right? I'm not sure how much they actually do because you see a lot of horribly derivative <laughs> books being put out, which are not like that. The young adult dystopian phase has more or less passed us by at this point. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the movies are still being made, but I think as far as literature goes, there's there's some movement towards whatever the next big thing is. Yeah. But all a lot of those are just like so derivative of each other and they don't add something new to the mix. What I find really interesting is how how often though that first the first books of these or the first stories of these type will be near carbon copies, very by the numbers within the lines kind of art and the sequels will not be and the sequels will start taking things in different directions yeah and i think that's that's an important argument against the people who who might be more against borrowing ideas from other people 
you know, again, even if we lived in a world without copyright and patenting, there might still be people who say, well, you still shouldn't borrow things from other, other artists and you should just come up with things on your own. That's what real artists do, which, you know, objectively, we could have that argument and, and debate that. But I still think that there is pretty clear evidence that, like, a lot of people start writing. I mean, I know I certainly did, and we talked about this before, like, start writing, taking ideas and copying stories and find their own voice along the way and find their own ideas along the way. And there's a, the, I think the difference between what I would call the things that you borrow for the sake of kind of borrowing glory. Yeah. Right? You, you, if, if you're borrowing something from another story because you want a piece of that action, you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's really popular. That's really cool. I want that in my story. And you just kind of take it for that reason. I don't think that leads to new ideas and new growth for the ideas as well. If you take it because you say, this didn't explore a certain thing that I want to explore. This wasn't done as well as I thought it should be done. As cool as this was, it wasn't cool enough. I think that's that's what leaves the door open to the growth of of art. Yeah, and I think that's the noble reason to do it, right? right? That's If you see something that wasn't executed well enough, but you love the idea, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the best reason for you to go off and say, all right, I'm going to write my own Power Rangers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, more to the point... If, if you're chasing that piece of the pie of like vampire romance or whatever, um, that doesn't really work. Uh, it takes, it takes quite some time to write a book. Uh, even if you're like churning one out, um, it takes quite a while to write a book. It takes longer to sell it. Um, unless you're an established author, it takes slightly less long, but then it has to go through an editing process. And by the time it gets to publishing, you're like two years have passed. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you try to get in on a fad, you're going to miss it. If, if you can see the fad as it has happened, how publishers do it is they have just stacks and stacks of manuscripts sitting around at all times. Right. And so if they see that, if they think that vampires are going to be the next big thing for whatever reason, they will just go to their stack of manuscripts, find a sufficiently good one about vampires. And then they'll rush that through. Right. Cause that cuts the, the time down by a, a huge amount because they've already been queried for it. So you, you can't really jump on the bandwagon very effectively. It's, it's really hard to do unless you're psychic and mm-hmm. can predict the future of what the trends are going to be. And sometimes the trends need a kind of critical mass to to hit. You, you, get, you get these stories that kind of open the door for writers to be inspired by them, and then a bunch of different writers all kind of take on that idea themselves, and one or two of them are going to make it big and kind of set the tone for a while yeah you if it's a big enough story you can argue that we're we're still kind of living in the in tolkien's fantasy world he's one of the ones that that it's kind of hard to escape the cultural effect that his stories have had on fiction on on fantasy fiction but we are slowly moving out of it the fantasy stories these days that don't borrow really anything from lord of the rings yeah so there's there's more than just borrowing ideas at work here i think it's important to talk also about borrowing characters, character traits, bits of dialogue, bits of description. And that, in this case, this is where the stealing comes in, in, in my view. This is where it's like, it's not just a matter of, oh, I'm going to, you know, borrow obviously implies take and then give back, which doesn't make any sense in this context. But it's not just that I'm going to lightly take a little bit of stuff from it and then and do my own thing to it. Like, if you see something that you like, grab it and, and run. Use it, like, use it in your work to make your work better. If it's a description, if it's a character trait, if it's some interaction, some bit of dialogue that works really well, 
I think those kinds of smaller pieces, opposed to the general ideas of a story or general plot concepts of a story, those smaller pieces of a story, less sacrosanct to a lot of people, but also more, they're more understandable for you to, to use, as long as you're using them well. Like, you know, don't just transplant them willy-nilly. But if, if you want to describe something and you, you found the perfect description somewhere else, I think it's a good idea to do that. Yeah, it depends. It depends on how specific it is. I mean, I'm more about taking like techniques, right? We were talking last episode, Chuck Palahniuk does this. He's like describing this woman's earrings or her jacket or something. And he says that it's not, it's not like a canary yellow. It's, he goes into this long description that sort of serves to show her as this nouveau riche kind of woman. Um, I think that technique is good to borrow, but if you, Mm-hmm. If you take the actual like descriptive sentence, then that's sacrosanct. I don't know. It's it's one of those things where there's sort of a fine line between homage mm-hmm. and plagiarism and just taking taking a technique, right? Because mm-hmm. you see in like film, you see a lot of shots that are sort of echoed from one movie to another. I think it's it's fun to like reference stuff, but you have to be you have to be pretty open about those references, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So let's take an example. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, last episode we talked about descriptions, and uh, let's say the one of Johnny Marcone, or Johnny Marconi. Yeah. I, I don't know how to pronounce that. My friend and I argue about how it's meant to be pronounced. The eyes like like worn dollar bills. What do you think? If, if you had a character in one of your stories, and let's say you wanted to describe the eye color... And you like the the feeling that invoked? Would you would you use that that phrase? No, for for me that mm-hmm. that's that's too much crossing a line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would look at that phrase and I would think about why it works, mm-hmm. and then I would say I would change the description such like eyes like maybe something like eyes like tarnished pennies, something that's similar to it, adjacent to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. adjacent to it's fine, but if you're if you're just copying the words, mm-hmm. I don't know. Partly it's because I can never remember. <laughs> specific instances Uh and so the idea of doing that to me is sort of like you're going in and you're just finding things to take rather than just looking at the technique and copying that Mm -hmm. which i think is good i think it's good to find the technique disassemble the technique and then find an alternate path that works for you yeah i think it's definitely true that if you can do that you should right but i think i'm i'm more okay with the idea of just taking taking lines or phrases outright if they work perfectly for what you want i can't recall i'm sure there was something i did like this at some point in in pokemon i can't recall like the last instance of this that i've done but there are so many descriptions and things that do stick in my memory from things that i've read that i've thought to myself if if the opportunity ever arises where where i need to describe something like this i'm going to just take this this description yeah when you see something that works really well for you in another story a lot of writers will say, you know, just just take it and use it and use it to spice up your own story. Yeah, I can see why it might people put some people off, but there's so many. The only reason they feel like it should put someone off is, let's say, there was a phrase that was so popular and it was so like you know commonly written that you just saw it in a bunch of different stories. Like you're reading a sci-fi story, you're reading a fantasy story, you're reading a contemporary fiction story, you're reading a history story, and for some strange reason everyone's every book has a character with eyes like like worn dollar bills. And at that point you're just like, alright, this is 
this is getting ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> this is dumb. Uh, I can see why that would be upsetting and frustrating and kind of like annoying for the reader and also just disparaging to the authors. But there's really just so much fiction in the world that a lot of the times, like, it, I feel like part of me feels like it would be a shame if no one except people who read the Justin Files ever were exposed to this line. It's just so good. So yeah, like, it's that kind of idea of like, if it works so well for you, help other people get exposed to it too. Yeah. So in, I think it was A Feast for Crows mm-hmm. from the Song of Ice and Fire series, there was a particular phrase which was as useless as nipples on a breastplate. <laughs> And people people hated that. Uh-huh. You would. I was uh, on the like subreddit shortly after the book was published, and people were like, "What?" He repeats it so often, and it's just like it takes you out of it because you're like, "Oh, it's this, it's this freaking phrase again." Right, right. It appeared in the text like four times over the course of like a thousand pages, but very specific turns of phrase like that, especially if you see them close to each other, people will notice them, and they won't like it. <laughs> right. I don't know. For it, it's sort of a, a matter of how specific you are in what you're taking i think if you read a lot and you write a lot a lot of the a lot of what you read will seep into what you're writing i think that's fine mm-hmm. i don't know it's one of those things that i i'm kind of on the fence about and depends on on how it's like pointed out to me mm-hmm. or or how i figure it out yeah and it might really be one of those things that that's up to the um up to individuals like i think uh, the major theme of this episode will be uh, I don't expect everyone to be on the same page about how much borrowing or how much how much stealing is appropriate from from one story to another. Obviously, there's going to be some bias towards being okay with fan fiction amongst our listeners, yeah. but there's there's definitely a ongoing debate and argument about how important originality is beyond the very general ideas. Yeah. But there's a second aspect to this that strikes a chord with me as a rationalist, maybe just from an efficiency or maximizing value angle. If I'm writing a story, I want to write the best story I possibly can, and if there's a perfect explanation for something or a perfect description of something, my options are to either lift it as whole as I can from its source and just put it in, or try and tweak it and shift words around to adapt it and risk losing some value from the original. But this is mostly an academic point right now, because I think most writers will tinker and adapt and reword just to help things fit their voice. But I don't mind the idea philosophically of writers stealing things from each other, big or small. I kind of feel like we're all working to make the best stories we can, so let's not get in each other's way. But obviously I understand that for financial and legal reasons, there are some limits to that. Yeah. CGP Brigade is a really good YouTube video on copyright. It's called uh, Forever and a Day, I think. And it talks about how the old companies that we are now used to kind of being media mega corporations like Disney, they built their fame off of taking old stories and adapting them and making modern versions of them. And when they did that, copyright stuff, they were taking things that were essentially free use. And copyright was something like, you know, two decades or something like yeah, that. Yeah, uh, 14 years renewable for another 14 years. Right. And then it, over the years, it just kind of kept, every time really big stories got close to their copyright, and the legislation was passed to change that until they got extended and extended and extended until it was even past the, the lifetime of the of the author, of the original creator. And that that is a tale, I think, of clear influence on many people's perception of what what acceptable ranges for stealing are because if we were to imagine the free open idea utopia of everyone sharing each other's ideas and, and making their own artistic works and stuff 
obviously we we have to admit that to some degree you'd want the authors to be able to profit off of their work and get recognition for being original and things like that. You don't want to make it so that authors can't make a living off of their their original ideas if they need to make a living off their original ideas. But when we're not talking about that and we're talking more about the artistic merits of, of originality, I don't know of any arguments besides just personal preference that says come up with your own stuff. Yeah. And I think that there's a big difference. There's a big distinction between like plagiarism, where you take something, strip the labels off of it, and you say, hey, this is mine, and I made this. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, like if you're writing fan fiction, if I write a Superman story, everyone knows I didn't come up with Superman, right? One of the things that happens with lesser-known authors, especially on the internet, authors who've never been published, if someone steals from them, there's very little legal recourse, mm-hmm. right? And that happens... Not very regularly, but it has happened. I'd be fine with someone taking like bits of description, pieces of a story, and, mm-hmm. and stuff. But if you if you take it and you say, "Hey, I came up with this all on my own," that to me is immoral. Right. But but I don't have a firm moral framework where I can say why. Well, if I had to argue that, I would basically say one that you never pitch a story on a on a, a handful of sentences. Right. Like no one no one is going to recommend a epic space opera because a really good description that might have been lifted from another author just kind of cheats the reader of, of who who deserves credit for that story right yeah so to me so to me that's why stealing those things is okay they're, they're spice they're not meat they're spice they're not they're not the core concept they're, no, they're nothing that that can mislead the readers I guess whereas if someone was to make a story, and someone else was to make another story, like like a year later, someone else was to make another story in that world and use all the same names and, and title and everything and have their own subtitle and, and call it the sequel or something like that. There's a potential loss to the original if that second thing is not good. People might not be clear enough in terms of like, oh, you know, I try, I checked out that other thing and I didn't like it and I didn't realize that like it was not, it was a derivative of the original, it was not by the same author or it misused their the story ideas or whatever it was. So you can have bad reflection on, on the original that way. And that's that's one of the major reasons that a lot of big companies will push so hard against small works that copy their ideas, because they don't want people to think, oh, you know, I don't need to read the originals, I don't need to play the originals, because I've got this derivative work, and I've, I've already formed my opinion based off the derivative work. Yeah, especially why a lot of companies will go especially hard on fan works or derivative works that clash with the image they're trying to cultivate. Yes. Uh, like if you have a children's show and someone's producing pornography related to it, mm-hmm. that will be looked on far less kindly because of the damage to the image. Right, right. Which is a little frustrating, not in that particular example maybe, but which is a little frustrating because I think that's one of the few genuine areas where I think it's which the most frustrating for the fans. And I'm thinking of Pokemon here obviously because I write Pokemon fan fiction, but like there is so much demand for mature, darker, grittier, adult-themed Pokemon stories. Not even themed stories, but just, you know, video games even. Yeah. Because it started as a video game, and, and the idea that Nintendo or Game Freak or the, the Pokemon company has not created a Pokemon-themed mon- Monster Hunter game or a Pokemon-themed... Uh, what's that new that new uh, red-haired lady with the bow fighting... Mechanical dinosaurs. Oh, Horizon Zero Dawn. Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah, I was I was watching my friend play Horizon Zero Dawn, and it looked really cool. And all I could think was like, 
you know, Game Freak, you've had you've had 20 years to make a game even remotely like this with Pokemon in it, and you haven't done it. And the the fan base grows older, and they get they get impatient, and they're like, if I if they're not going to do it, I will. Yeah. And then the, the you know the band hammer comes down and everything, but that's it. It's the the monopoly of ideas. And concepts and themes is is what becomes frustrating and, and spawns a lot of derivative work. It chafes. Does Game Freak and Nintendo really deserve to make every version of Pokemon that will ever exist forever, even after the original creator dies, and even after all the original people who worked on it are gone? Because that's how things seem to be set up right now, and I don't think it's tenable. There are a lot of really great Pokemon fan games. Katura and the rest of the folk working on the rational Pokemon game in Discord. It's called Pokemon Renegade now. They're making something really cool that I bet no one at Game Freak would make in another 20 years. If we're lucky, maybe we'll get a remake of Pokemon Conquest, but that's what we were stuck with for the tactical Pokemon games. Officially, anyway. Yeah. Pokemon is a good example. I don't know if you've ever seen Yokai Watch. I have, yeah. Very similar to Pokemon. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot that stops someone from making something that takes the Pokemon concept and replaces everything with it but i think that if you have a poke like a more mature pokemon thing people want it to be the actual pokemon right right i think i got in an argument with eagle jarl about this once the distinction between taking a work that's about dungeons and dragons and then just replacing it wholesale and saying okay we're we're about you know heroes and hammers now i I guess the term i want is cultural reply Mm -hmm. metropolitan man started out as not having Superman in it. It was just a like a blonde-haired guy who was basically Superman, but we're not going to call him that, and he has most of the same powers. And I was like, well, you know, it's better to just talk about Superman if I want to talk about Superman. Right. This, this is where we get into, when do you do fan fiction, and when do you take the idea? I think if you're doing the cultural reply, if you want to say something about Superman specifically and his place in our culture, you should do that as fan fiction, or whatever it is that you specifically want to talk about. And I think that for for major franchises, you're basically speaking to other people who have seen or read whatever or played whatever you're, it is you're talking about. Yeah. If you just want to comment on a genre, it's better to make up your own stuff, although then you risk the problem that people are very familiar with specific examples. And if you do fan fiction, you can just wave away so much exposition. Right. You don't really need it anymore, right? I was, uh, I was writing this power rangers fan fiction but it doesn't have the power rangers it's just like the basic concept of their kids like this is a super sentai thing right 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 there's these kids and they have they have these elaborate transformation sequences to be the villain of the week whatever to have to set up all that stuff instead of just being like hey it's the power rangers you know what they are right, let's right. just let's just get on with it that's a real that's a real cost that you're injecting into the work yeah if i was writing the pokemon fan fiction without it being Pokemon, I would have to describe every single Pokemon counterpart that came onto the screen. I don't describe pretty much any Pokemon. It's like the one major... It's the one major area in in my story where I've just done zero work towards. I just... If someone doesn't know what the Pokemon is, either because they've never played that generation or whatever, I just kind of rely on them to Google it because it would get... There's over 700 of them. Over 800 of them now. Right? Like, it would just get... It would be just so much extra word count that is unnecessary to to people who are fans of the of the franchise and would be really boring for fans of the franchise to have to read a description of, of each one 
And it's, it, you know, it's a cost-benefit kind of thing, because clearly there's some people who might read it that would get turned off from not knowing who any of these Pokemon are and what they look like and that kind of thing. And also, it's it's definitely a privilege myself to be able to do that. Like, because the Pokemon creators did the work of creating this world with these creatures in them, I now can can write a story in that world without having to, to come up with all these different creatures myself. So it's definitely a, a crutch that I'm that I'm leaning on. Yeah, HPMRR does that too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you don't even notice that with descriptions. There are very few descriptions of the principal cast, right? Yeah, because people know what they look like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, like if I was writing a other kind of pocket monsters story, the commentary of the world of Pokemon would be missing. Yeah, it's the idea that like the only reason, the only reason this makes sense in any sense has to be that these creatures are deadly and dangerous, and you send kids into the world to have adventures and catch them at a young age because society needs them to do that and they need to learn to to do that at an early age yeah without those factors the pokemon world doesn't just become nonsensical it becomes grotesque yeah as a society even though we're willing to look by and large willing to look the other way for a lot of things involving animal suffering for food we don't we don't look the other way for animal suffering for sport and yet that's kind of bedrock that the pokemon franchise pretends is okay because love and friendship between the pokemon and humans it's a whole different argument if they're sentient and clearly i made my pokemon non-sentient after the video games for that reason but that commentary and that explanation of things doesn't really work as well if i just come up with my own story that mimics it the point is that it's it's trying to create a more mature pokemon world specifically yeah so that's actually a good segue i guess to Mm -hmm. when do you take an idea and when do you just do fanfic and that's where we're going to leave it off for now since this episode went on a bit over long stay tuned for part two and thanks for listening